Sorry, I missed my cue here. Okay, Merry Christmas. See if I can get your light. Well, that's pretty much what I was going to say, so. <laughs> Thanks, Susie. Well, we're going to open up to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 7. And um, if you want to, just to give you a little heads up, we're going to also jump to Matthew chapter 4 in a little bit. So if you want to tuck something in Matthew chapter 4. That'll give you a head start. The, uh, the Old Testament is full of um, prophetic uh, passages. And uh, often the job, most often the job of a prophet actually was not foretelling of things to come, but it was calling people to repentance. Uh, bringing to light the coming judgment of God. A, a sort of, uh, a, just a message that they would bring. They tip, often were unpopular people, if you can imagine that. Uh, because they brought a message that said, you're walking away from God, you're walking in rebellion uh, to God, you're in sin, and unless you turn away from that path, God is going to bring His judgment on you. That was the main job that the prophets seemed to have was holding people, tethering them back to the truth that they would walk in it, walk in covenant relationship with God and uh, not in rebellion to Him. One of, the, one of the things that we probably most often associate with prophets, though it wasn't necessarily the, really the main focus of what the Lord often used them to accomplish, was the foretelling of things to come. And the most powerful one that is spoken of through the Old Testament there is the coming of Jesus Christ. The coming of the light of God. The Savior of all mankind. Now, sometimes those passages um, are difficult to understand when we're reading through the Old Testament. That we, They're easy to not understand how this speaks of the coming of Christ. And so I want to just mention as we go into Isaiah, and we're going to really look at um, the fulfillment of this passage being Jesus. Um, but it, it, it's helpful, I think, to understand how we can get to that. Uh, how we go from reading a passage in Isaiah that was spoken many, many, many generations before Jesus to saying this is about Jesus. Um, and so one of the thing, here's, here's two tools that we use to kind of evaluate, uh, help understand when Old Testament scriptures are speaking about the coming of Jesus because they kind of do it in a language that it doesn't just say Jesus is coming. Um, it doesn't, doesn't just spell it out quite that clearly, but alludes to his coming in various ways and some, sometimes in symbolic ways. And so uh, two of the tools that we have for kind of understanding that, putting these things into the right context for us to understand, is one, uh, many of these passages are, are quoted by Jesus himself, 
uh, or by uh, the New Testament uh, writers, especially the Gospels, and they are directly linked to Jesus by, those, uh, by many of the New Testament writers. So some of those, uh, Matthew, Luke, John, Peter, um, they, they all directly link uh, Jesus to passages, uh, to Isaiah, actually, to passages in Isaiah, both here in chapter 9 and, and Peter's, uh, in uh, Peter, he actually uh, associates Jesus to Isaiah 53, um, which speaks of him as the one who comes to sacrifice himself uh, for, for people. So, so that's one of the tools we have for understanding that these passages are linked to Jesus. That is that Jesus either says it does, or um, God through the New Testament writers says it does. So we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Um, another tool that we have is that we look at the overall context of Scripture. And, and as we see that uh, Jesus and, and the apostles all quote some of the Old Testament Scriptures in, and put them in the light of Christ, um, being the fulfillment of them, uh, we see this pattern then through Scripture where, where the Old Testament is um, the, the larger truth being pronounced through the Old Testament is that there's a Savior coming. There's, there's a King of Kings coming. A King greater than David. Wiser than Solomon. Uh, a, a King more powerful than either of them. And, and more kind. And more gracious. And, and good that he's a better shepherd than all of them combined, and that his reign won't be for a period of time, uh, it will be everlasting. And then we see that pattern of revelation through the Old Testament, and then we see the New Testament say, yep, Jesus is the one who this was speaking about. And so uh, both of those things together help us then be able to look at these Old Testament passages and see that there's a... There's a, a, sometimes a murmuring and sometimes just a direct revelation of Jesus is coming. Now because we know the story of the gospel, because we have the benefit of knowing about the birth of Christ and his death and his resurrection um, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, um, we also have the benefit of being able to now, the benefit they didn't have here in the days of Isaiah, of, uh, of, of being able to of see the revelation of Jesus Christ now a little more clearly through what is spoken through Isaiah. So, so we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7, and we're going to see really how this is fulfilled ultimately in Scripture or in, in Jesus Christ. And so this speaks, uh, 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 before we start reading here, just make a mention of this. There, in a lot of these passages that, that foreshadow uh, or, or foretell um, the coming of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, there, many of them contain a lesser, and even in the New Testament this is true in some cases, there's a lesser and a greater fulfillment. Um, and what I mean by that is that there was, there was a specific, uh, specific, wow, I don't even know where I got that one. New word for 2022, specific, work that into your vocab. Uh, there was a specific historical context that Isaiah was living in. 
And, and this passage, this does speak to that specific historical context. That's the lesser fulfillment. The greater fulfillment is that it speaks to something much larger that God is unfolding beyond this immediate historical context. So the immediate historical context had to do with oppression from the Assyrians, uh, the suffering, and, and the, the, the anguish and the hardship that Israel was going through uh, as a result of the Assyrian rule and, and uh, um, expansion. And so they were suffering under that heavy hand. And specifically, the northern part of Israel that sort of bore the brunt of it. Um, and, and so there, that's what was going on in the immediate, his, immediate historical context. And so you'll see how it speaks to that. Uh, and, the, and that God was going to send someone who would uh, sort of save them out of that. Um, and, and so that's the immediate historical context, the lesser fulfillment. Um, and, and so as we speak, look at a lesser fulfillment and a greater fulfillment, you might, it might be helpful to think of it in this way, uh, as a temporal fulfillment and an eternal fulfillment. Um, an earthly fulfillment and a heavenly fulfillment. Um, remember when, we've, when we're looking in Exodus at uh, the tabernacle, um, which eventually is a temple is built in likeness to the tabernacle, that what Hebrews says in the New Testament, it says that those things in the tabernacle, in the, in the temple, were a, a earthly representation of a heaven real, heavenly reality. And, and so in likeness to that, there is an earthly historical context, temporal context here, that speaks to a heavenly eternal context. And, and we're going to see how both of those come together. The interesting thing to me is, um, and, and we'll turn to it in a minute, but I'll just allude to it right now, in Matthew, Matthew just sort of looks completely over, uh, he quotes part of this passage, and he looks completely over the immediate, immediate historical context of this passage and goes directly to applying it to the coming of Christ. And that's what we'll often see in the New Testament. In fact, uh, we see it in the Gospels, in the, if the, uh, uh, even in the pronouncement of, of Jesus' birth through the angels uh, and passages that are referred to here in Isaiah, um, that there's just a skipping over of this immediate context. Immediate context that's important for us when we go back to study the Scripture to go, okay, what's going on here? We do the hard work of trying to understand that immediate context so that we can glean the most valuable truth of all that leads us to eternal life. Uh, but the gospel writers, they just go, it, you know, that temporal fulfillment, that lesser fulfillment, that's not what we're concerned about. We're concerned about the greater fulfillment who is here, Jesus Christ. So we'll look at that in just a moment. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Uh, it, it, it speaks to the gloom and the anguish and the contempt that, uh, that other nations had towards uh, Israel. Uh, the reference there to Zebulun and the land of Naphtali speak to those, those northern areas uh, that were most exposed to the brunt of some of this suffering. And what I think is, is uh, to me, just very, uh, just speaks to the mercy of God and the grace of God is that the Lord recognizes that there, there's a part of Israel that has borne the brunt of this. And it is going to be to them that this salvation is going to, to, to come. He's, he recognizes there's, there's suffering going on here, and, and I'm going to bring a Savior to relieve you of that suffering. Um, now that salvation comes to the whole nation, but, but he specifically mentions the suffering of those who, uh, um, who are bearing the brunt of it. Then the, uh, uh, you see the reference there to uh, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Of course, we, as we get into the Gospels, we, we read about that. We read about Jesus in Galilee. Um, we read about the, the land that he is from and travels to. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And um, echoing again some of the things spoken there in the Gospels, especially at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Um, and this is speaking really... Uh, uh, the lesser fulfillment is pointing towards a king that the Lord is going to bring and install to bring temporal uh, relief from this temporal suffering. But there is an eternal suffering attached to sin and God's judgment. That is a much greater problem than the temporal suffering that any ruler can bring upon a people. Uh, we see some horrific things. We, we've, uh, you know, in our knowledge of history, we have come to understand some of the horrific atrocities and sufferings brought upon people uh, and some just gross, horrific injustices. And yet, even that is, is not a, as deep a level of suffering as what is coming for those who stand under the judgment of God because of their sin unrepented sin. And so the Lord is even more, even more concerned than the suffering of Israel in the days of Isaiah. He is concerned about the suffering of people for eternity because of their rebellion against Him. And the people who walked in darkness, that's the darkness. The darkness of sin, the darkness of hopelessness that comes by living in sin. The, the darkness of living in rebellion against God as His enemy. The, the New Testament says that when we, before, we ex, before we receive Christ as our Savior and our Lord, the Bible says we are enemies of God. However we feel about it, it doesn't matter because the Lord says, the God of the universe says, you're my enemy unless you've received my Son, Jesus Christ. And so we would be judged as His enemy unless we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
And so we are in darkness. But it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied nation. You have increased its joy. They receive before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. I want you to turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. And there are, there are actually many passages that we could go to this morning uh, to see how, um, how especially this portion of Isaiah is directly linked to Jesus. But this is just one that I want to go to this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 and so as we read in Isaiah, it says, uh, but there, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So look what, look what Matthew says here. So, so Matthew has given us the account of the birth of Christ. Um, he has also uh, given us the account of, of Jesus being led into the wilderness where he was tempted. Um, and then it says this in verse 12 of chapter 4. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, uh, John the baptizer, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time... Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Matthew, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just directly says the fulfillment of Isaiah is in Jesus Christ. Uh, not in Hezekiah. Back in, in, in those days, that was a temporal fulfillment that God brought to His people, but this is an eternal fulfillment. A greater fulfillment. The greatest fulfillment has come in Jesus Christ. Now, um, one, one note I want to mention to you, in case uh, you might be confused like I've been at times, when you see Matthew quote uh, Isaiah, you go, wait a minute, that's not a direct quote. Uh, and you're right, it's not. But one of the things that you'll find is the New Testament writers, under the inspiration, being guided by the Holy Spirit, will sometimes pull upon several passages and they'll either give a maybe a uh, sort of summarized version of that um, or a, a version of it that helps the reader understand how it meets, how it speaks to the immediate context. As in here, Matthew says um, that uh, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, there's no mention of Gentiles there in Isaiah, uh, but Matthew understands that the coming of Jesus is in the context of all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles. Um, John says he came first to his own and, and then to, and then to uh, the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. So the Jews and the Gentiles. 
Um, one other thing that you'll see um, in when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, sometimes there'll be a mashup. Um, and so sometimes uh, the, the New Testament will quote the Old Testament by taking several passages, condensing them, and putting them together. And so that you can see how they all work together to reveal something. Um, and uh, that is certainly true in the birth account of Christ in the Gospels, in the revelation that's given through the, through, um, the, uh, in the temple, and Simeon and Anna and uh, the angels. And um, so that's one thing that you will see. So if, you, if you're a little confused by why it's not a direct quote, it's because, uh, because of that. Reading on here, and as we got into verse 3, you've multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What this is saying is that the Lord is going to take Israel from being in an oppressed place and bring them to a prosperous place. Uh, from a place of living under suffering and uh, despair to a place of living out of joy and f- abundance. Now, this obviously it speaks to a temporal context there, but here I'm going to jump right to its eternal context, and that is that, that we live, apart from Christ, we live under the weight and, and the slavery of sin and death. We, we have no control over it. We can try to sort of improve ourselves, but apart from Christ, we we are eternally condemned by our sin. And death is coming. That that is just a fact that we cannot avoid. But in Christ, we are given freedom from that. And so when we look at fruitfulness and the multiplication here, um, there is a, a direct uh, application to the time of Christ that foreshadows here a new life, a new fruitfulness, a new victory that is brought to mankind through Christ. New life, eternal life. Eternal life where we are embraced by God instead of, instead of receiving His judgment. Fruitfulness. That our labors to do something good uh, aren't, aren't, aren't hindered by our own sin, but rather they're empowered by God Himself for His glory. And victory, rather than slavery to sin and death, we now have victory over sin and death. They hold now no power over us because of Christ. Christ has defeated them. Verse 4 of Isaiah 9, For the yoke of this burden and the staff Uh, For his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. There's this reference to the day of Midian, which you'll find in Judges chapter 6 through 8, that speaks to uh, the Midianites. There was another time here, you see this theme through the Old Testament and even throughout history, that there's this theme of of Israel being oppressed by other nations. And uh, that was true um, in the time of the Midianites that they were oppressors of Israel. God raised up uh, an unlikely hero of sorts, uh, Gideon. And he chose basically the least of the least of the least. The least of a family from the least of a tribe. 
And, and he chose the, the, the least likely guy to ever lead in some sort of military victory. He chose that guy to, to lead uh, the army. And uh, this reference to as in the days of Midian, it's helpful to understand what the reference is for. So God raised up Gideon to lead an army against the Midianites uh, and one of the interesting things is how he won. Did he win by his political maneuvering? Uh, did he win by his, his, his great military uh, wisdom and understanding and strategy? Did he win because he's just a, a hulk of a guy that could just take out masses of people himself? None of that, actually. All, all he pretty much did was just... just walk in the steps where God told him to walk, and God actually directly and miraculously won the battle. Um, it was sort of like when, the, when God brought the, the Israelites to the Red Sea, and, and the Red Sea parts, and they're realizing that the Egyptian army's barreling down on them, and then He reveals to them, hey, don't worry about it, the Lord's going to fight for you. And the Lord defeats the Egyptian army, without the Israelites ever having to, to go to battle against them. That's what happened in the days of Midian. A miraculous victory by the Lord. And it's going to be as in those days that God is going to relieve His people of the burden that's upon them. The burden of sin. The burden of death. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's going to be no more use for weapons of war. Why? Why will be? Because there will be a peace that is brought by this new ruler, this ruler that is sent from God. There's going to be a peace that is brought by him that is a complete and perfect and lasting and true peace. Now, we use the word peace today, and you and I both know that we don't really mean peace when we use the word peace, right? When we, especially when we speak to the way nations get along with each other. Or sometimes the way people in an, a community get along with each other. What we tend to mean is that we don't see active fighting and war going on. That's what we mean when we say peace here. But this peace that's being spoken of here that is going to be brought is a complete reconciliation. A lasting, permanent, and true peace that goes all the way through to the core. A peace where people don't have any reason to go to war with each other. A peace where you and I don't have a reason to go to loggerheads with each other. That kind of a peace. So there's no reason now for uh, warriors to go to battle. There is no need for weapons of war. And that's what verse 5 is speaking to. That foreshadowing that in the coming of Christ, He reconciles us to God. He brings peace first between Himself and us through Christ, His Son. And then He brings peace between each other. It's an interesting thing that as believers, when we recognize the forgiveness that God has given us, we begin to recognize that that which we hold against one another 
is pittance compared to what God has forgiven us. There's a, a story that Jesus tells about a man that was in debt, deeply in debt. Like he could work it off his whole life and not get out of that debt. And he goes to his master and says, please forgive me, I can't, I can't pay it. And he's forgiven that debt. His master forgives him the debt. I mean, a debt that he can never repay. Even in a couple lifetimes. And then, and then that servant who was forgiven all this debt goes and shakes down a, a, a guy that's subordinate to him for, for you know, a, a, a pittance compared to what he's forgiven. And shakes him down. And he's he's, he's going to throw him in prison and do all kinds of miserable things until he pays up that little bit that he owes him. The comparison there that Jesus gives is like us. The things that we hold against one another. The unforgiveness that we hold towards one another compared to that which God has forgiven us. What hypocrites we are when we don't pass on that forgiveness. And that so, through that, God empowers us to be at peace with one another. As He has forgiven us, so we forgive one another and we find ourselves being able to share in the love of Christ. Something we can't do on our own. No peace treaty will accomplish that. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus will be the one, uh, Jesus is the one who is given to us who has come into the world as a child, born of a virgin, uh, He comes in likeness to us. And with the appearance of being in a very vulnerable condition, coming as a baby, and being able to walk like us through this life. And yet, simultaneously, having divine attributes and power. That's what makes Him different. We see, a lot of, uh, we see a lot of rulers in this world, whether we're speaking of rulers of kingdoms and nations or whether we're speaking of sort of, I guess we could say rulers, but we don't like to use that word in our country because we kind of fought pretty hard to avoid that kind of thing. But, uh, we, but we have you know, council members and we have uh, mayors and governors and, and commissioners and and senators and presidents, and we have all these people who serve in various forms of governance. And we judge them good or bad based on how they compare to one another. We say he's good or she's good uh, because he or she is better than most from our viewpoint. And we say he or she is bad because from our viewpoint, he or she is worse than most others. We relate them all to one another. We have an earthly standard of comparing one to another. But the standard by which we all are going to be judged is the standard of God and we all fall short, the Scriptures say. Which is what makes Jesus, the King of kings, different than all other rulers. He is not judged better than most. He is judged according to the standard of God and declared righteous and good and holy and perfect. And so when Jesus rules, He is a perfect ruler. To us, a Son is given. And so when the government is set upon His shoulders, 
We need not we need not be afraid of that. I don't know about you, but when I hear about the government being set upon anybody's shoulders, I I get a little worried. But when the government is set upon his shoulders, we can be at complete peace because he is the only one worthy of carrying that role and title. He is the only one who is the wonderful counselor, the one who is all wise, perfectly and incomparably, who needs no advice from anyone else, wiser than Solomon. He is the only one who is mighty God, which means mighty God. He is sovereign and supreme over everyone and everything. He is the only one who is worthy of that title, Everlasting Father. That He is a protector and a provider for His people. That He is a permanent overseer and shepherd who is good and kind and gracious and loving. He is the only one worthy of the title Prince of Peace. Because His rule brings peace that is lasting and true. In fact, the peace that Christ brings isn't a peace that's just between us. It's a peace that's within us. A, a way of being at rest now with the God who would be our judge. To be at peace with Him in our soul, in our heart, in our mind. And so, like the days of Midian, when Gideon won the battle, not by his political prowess or his military strategy or his great force, but rather by the miraculous intervention of God, as in the days of Midian, so will be the ruling of Christ. As we read on there in verse 7, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. As in the days of Midian, so it is in the days of Christ, that it is not through Christ's great uh, uh, political strategies uh, or maneuverings, but it is through the miraculous intervention of God that He brings peace to mankind. That He rules with justice and righteousness. The salvation that He brings is a lasting one. Not a temporal one. And it is brought by Yahweh Himself. There's no, there's no king or ruler that has ever fulfilled the passage from Isaiah. Save one. Jesus Christ. And we are still awaiting to see the complete fulfillment as Christ returns and will bring both judgment and salvation. Judgment to those who rebel against Him. Judgment to those who reject Him. And salvation to those who have received Him by faith. And my question for you this morning is, are you ready for that? Scriptures say that Jesus is coming. And he's not going to inform us ahead of time. Other uh, of the specific timing of his coming, that is. He has informed us that he's coming. And to be ready. But he, 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 he could stop by at any time. We know not uh, what the day brings, right? We, we really live in some pretty fragile bodies. And they, this, this, this breath that we breathe and take for granted can be snuffed out pretty darn quick. 
And we don't know when Christ is going to return to establish His eternal kingdom where He reigns as ruler over all things. But that day is coming. And the question is, are you ready for that day? And it doesn't really matter um, whether you're, you're, you're eight, 18 or 80. If, if you're hearing this now, God is speaking to you, telling you to turn to Him and receive Him by faith. Because His judgment is coming, but also His salvation for those who receive Him by faith. And if you've not done that today, I want to urge you to say, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. I want to receive you as my Savior, as my Lord. I want to know this forgiveness, this peace that you came to bring. I want to know how Isaiah speaks of you being the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, that you rule over my heart with that kind of wisdom and that kind of uh, permeating peace and lead me in your ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, the Son who would take our place on the cross, and we ask that You would help us to receive Him by faith and to walk by faith. Lord, to live by faith now, having received this gift that You've given us through Him, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to help us live out a life now pleasing to You. No longer weighed down and tormented and oppressed by the weight of sin and temptation and death, but Lord, having been set free from that by the blood of Christ and by His resurrection, defeating sin and death once and for all. Lord, help us to walk in that newness of life, to share that one with another, to celebrate in that, as we do here this morning, celebrating You, the light of the world, given to us at just the right time. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't read to the end of the book, this is how it ends. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.